Amen. You know, as we think about this Putting Down Roots initiative, it's really about planting ourselves here for the long haul. Uh, the Lord has been kind to us and giving us so much, and he has given us an opportunity to be uh, a people who are here in this community, who have put down roots here for the long haul, uh, to, to have helpful resources and tools, even a tool like a building, to help us better uh, expand our efforts to be diligent in the mission that he's called us to do. And you know, my prayer is, as we go through this, we're calling this a generosity initiative, but, but my prayer is that, that in three years you would not quit being generous. But this, as we think about all that Christ has called us to be and do, this is ultimately about our sanctification. This is ultimately about lives being transformed by the power of the gospel so that we would be generous, not just with our resources, but with our time. Uh, that we would be generous in how we treat people and we would be generous in how we pour out our lives as living sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of our king. And that's really at the end of the day what we want to be about individually and together as a church family, that we would be a generous people because we have a generous God. And that is, at the end of the day, what we want to be known as. And, you know, you think about what opportunities there are before us. It's exciting to see, and uh, we want to be part of that very much so. Well, this morning I want to ask that you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Our text this morning will be verses 21 through 23. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. We began this series, and the first six weeks of this series is, is certainly... Uh, highlighting and helping to highlight this Putting Down Roots initiative, but we're going to continue on through the book after that. Uh, but as we began, as we started this book, in the first sermon, we talked about really the prayer of a pastor. And we see the, the things that Paul prayed for, for the Colossian believers, a, a group of Christians, by the way, that he didn't even know, that he had never met, that, that had been planted as not a direct result of his involvement, but indirectly. And these were prayers that Paul was praying for these believers and certainly very much part of the prayer that I know I and the other elders pray for you as well, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's what we want for you. Uh, we want our church to be a people known uh, as those who walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Last week we looked at verses 15 through 20, and that highlights the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the fact that he is supreme over all, that he is preeminent, that he is first, and that he should be first. He is first, he is over all things, and that he should be first in your life, and that should impact everything about you. It's real quick, I mean, we just real quick, people can figure out what is first and foremost in your life just by hanging out with you and talking with you just for a few minutes. It's evident. How you spend your time and how you go about your life is evident whether or not the preeminence of Christ is central to you, to me. As we think about what we're being called to as Christ followers, last week we kind of looked at the why. Because Jesus is preeminent. That's why we're to live out our lives in faithful obedience and worship of him. Because Jesus is first. Well, today I want us to see more about the what, what it is that we are to be about as the church, as God's people. And so as we move forward in this passage, I want us to, to get a little glimpse here of, 
of what it is that we're called to be about. Verses 21 through 23, this is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, And you who, were, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us now as we consider your word. God, would you show us and give us understanding of the beauty of the gospel and the power of the gospel that we would be faithful in committing our lives to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are a lot of words that we use to describe salvation or aspects of salvation, what it means to be a Christian. We use these fancy words that are biblical words. I know sometimes people get all excited and say, well, why should we use hard words? Like, well, it's in the Bible. Let's be faithful and use biblical words. Let's just try our best to understand what they mean. A lot of words that are used to describe salvation. One important word is that of justification. Justification, it's this idea of going from condemned, being condemned, to being declared righteous before God. That's a big deal. There's this idea of adoption, which, which carries with the, the understanding of, of moving from stranger to adopted son or daughter of the king. The word redemption has this idea of, of, of being brought out of slavery to freedom. Forgiveness from being a debtor to the debt being paid. And then last but not least, we have the word reconciliation. Reconciliation is this no notion of someone who's an enemy that now has become a friend. The great Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon about reconciliation, summarized it this way. He said, quote, There has been a long-standing quarrel between God and man. Yet God is not willing for that quarrel to continue. He is the God of peace, and he has, on his part, prepared everything that is necessary for a perfect reconciliation. His glorious wisdom has devised a plan whereby, without violating his justice as the judge of all the earth, and without tarnishing his perfect holiness, he can meet man upon the ground of mercy, and man can again become the friend of God. That's what it means to be reconciled. It's a wonderful term that Paul highlights right here in these verses. And in this short passage, it's a short passage, not a short sermon. In this short passage about reconciliation, we're going to consider three observations about reconciliation. First, reconciliation needed. Second, reconciliation accomplished. And then third, reconciliation demonstrated. Let's look at reconciliation needed. In verse 21, he's, he's coming out of verses 15 through 20, where he's given us this glorious picture of the preeminent Christ, the, the fact that Jesus is preeminent, that he is glorious, that he is supreme over all things. And not only is he the agent and glorious agent of creation, he is also the agent and Lord of our salvation, of our reconciliation. And now Paul moves into unpack that a bit more. But think about reconciliation. If reconciliation is something that we need, 
that implies that something has gone wrong, right? If, if you need to be reconciled with someone, that means there's a conflict that exists. If, if you have a, a conflict, that, that there is this call to be reconciled. So to be reconciled is highlighting this reality of a separation or an estrangement that has taken place in a relationship. And so in verse 21, Paul highlights the situation that the Colossians had been saved out of. And by the way, it's the same situation that marks each and every one of us. Look at verse 21. He says, and you who were once or once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. A couple of things here I want us to see. First of all, I want us to note the condition of our, of our situation. The fact that we need reconciliation. Notice the condition. He says, <clears throat> you who were once alienated. Alienated. Left to yourself, that is what you are alienated from God. That's what sin does. Sin is not simply a bad mark against you. It is something that literally alienates you from God. It's the condition we find all ourselves in due to sin. And, and it's, you can compare it this way. You think about a married couple or a couple that's dating, whatever the case may be, especially a married couple, you think about how, it, you know, they may get into an argument and there may be tension. I know that never happens to any of you, but there may be tension in that relationship and, and, and they're still married. There, there's still this tension, though. There, there's a disagreement. Well, listen, our situation with God is not like that. Our situation is more uh, uh, akin to a divorce where there's been an actual separation, where there's actually been something that's been severed someone completely removed. That is your condition apart from salvation in Christ. You are severed, you are alienated from God. What does that look like? Well, let me explain some of the symptoms of that. He lays it out here for us in two ways. He goes on to say we're alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Notice he says hostile in mind. Again, this helps to explain the alienation that we experience a bit further, doesn't it? It means there is this set attitude against God. It's the idea that we do not like God and we resent his ways and his standards. Now, I know that some of us may be tempted to think this morning, um, maybe even thinking back to your pre-conversion days, or maybe if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you say, well, I'm, I don't consider myself a Christian, but, but I don't. I'm not hostile about it. I'm not hostile against God. Or you think about your, as a Christian, your, your days prior to, to being a Christian, you may think, well, I don't remember having a, a raging hostility against God. But before conversion, that's the condition played out in, in the symptom of being hostile in mind. Romans 8, 5 through 7 says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Peace, not hostility. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it can't not. So the problem that we have before we're 
born again before we're made a, a follower of Jesus is that we're hostile in mind, meaning that God has given us his holy standard and he has revealed it in his word through his commandments and he has shown himself to be righteous and holy and perfect and pure. And what the truth, the, the truth of the matter is, is that we don't like it. We prefer our own standards. And so we set up our own standards of what righteousness may look like. And we try to live according to that because none of us can live according to the righteous standard of God on our own. It's impossible. And that makes there to be a hostility that exists between us and God. It's not that we had just said or done a few bad things or made some mistakes along the way. That's what you hear oftentimes. We kind of messed up. No, as a, as a non-Christian, you were or you are in open hostility against God. That is your condition. That is, that, is, that is the situation. You're alienated and you're hostile in mind. Even if you're here today as a non-Christian, you hear some of these things, it offends you a bit. You, you don't like to hear the kinds of things that you may be hearing this morning. Even as a Christian, some of that hostility sometimes creeps back in. You'll hear things in the Word and you'll be like, I, uh, I don't know about that. I'm, that makes me a little uncomfortable. You start hearing things, and just think about the numerous examples we could give, whether it's issues of life or sexuality or marriage or gender, or, Pastor, you're starting to talk about my money again. That's hostility that's welling up in you. You know, it's God's money. I'm not talking about your money. I'm talking about his money. Other things we could go to, that pushback that you start to experience in your heart comes from that sense of hostility that you had and have against God. Hostile in mind. Holiness of God is something by nature that we disdain. I've said it before that the holiness of God is your greatest problem. It is your greatest problem because you're not holy. And that's what God demands, that you be holy. So we're alienated, we're hostile in mind, and that shows up in our deeds. Not just in our mind and our thinking, but also in our actions, doing evil deeds. Our actions follow our minds, thus an evil mind leads to evil deeds. And, and here's where we often focus, though, isn't it? We, we focus on sin as being activity, sinful actions. And certainly there are, there are, there, there's that reality, sinful behavior. But listen, if we do not realize where these behaviors come from, namely that we're alienated and hostile in mind, then we will not realize just how jacked up we really are. We will, we will see ourselves as, okay, I don't do these things, so therefore I'm not as bad as that person. That's a terrible way to think. Because that's not the way that God reveals it in the scriptures. If you want to compare yourself to someone, compare yourself to the holiness of God and see how you fare. See how you fare then. You see, we're, we're, we're sinners by nature. You sin because of who you are, alienated, hostile in mind, therefore doing evil deeds. You don't do the evil deeds and then become hostile in mind and alienated. It is your condition fleshed out in these symptoms. John 3, verses 19 and 20, we read, And this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. They prove that through their actions. Our actions, our sinful behavior is only the evidence of something that exists internally. It's the outward manifestation of a 
of a depraved and wicked heart. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. That's our problem, is that we love sin more than we love God. That's the story of all of us. And friends, if you've not repented of your sins and placed your hope in Jesus Christ, this still remains your status. There are people in this room, as I speak, that are alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And you know who you are. There are many people in this room who knew that's exactly what your life is characterized, and you cried out to Jesus because he, you knew because of his work in you that he was your only hope. Paul reminds the Colossians of what they were saved from. It's always good to be reminded of what we're saved from, isn't it? This is who we are left to ourselves without a Savior. Number two, reconciliation accomplished. The, we see Paul, as he, as he, under, as he helps us rem, remember, and the Colossians to remember what they were saved from, why we need to be reconciled, to reconciliation accomplished in verse 22. Those who were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. See, while the root of the problem was found in us, the answer to that problem can never be found in us. And you, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, how? In his body of flesh by his death. Two things that we note about our reconciliation here. One, it was accomplished by Jesus. The work of reconciliation is the work brought about by Jesus. Notice in verse 20, if you were to go back up to verse 20, it says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then he repeats again in verse 22, He's now reconciled in his body, us, by his death. Friends, listen. Reconciliation is something God does to sinners. It is not something you can ever do for yourself. Our condition was so bad. Our situation was so, so corrupt and so messed up that we could never, on our own, in our own strength, make ourselves right with God. We could never reconcile our way to Jesus by doing enough good deeds or by trying to live some kind of moral life. It's exhausting. I, many of us have tried that. Some of you may still be trying that, to just live, live a good, decent life and maybe God will somehow welcome me into the kingdom. It's not going to happen that way. If you're going to be brought into the kingdom, it's going to be because, be because God reconciled you. Because God does that work. He demanded holiness, but because of our sin, we stood condemned. We stood separated, severed, alienated. But God in his grace, in his grace, something he gave to us we didn't deserve, in his grace, he comes in the form of a man. Son of God now comes in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, and he lives the life that was demanded of us, that we live in holiness. He lived that way, and yet he died the death we all deserve by shedding his blood on the cross because we know without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. He died so that we could have peace with God. There was a payment, 
that had to be made for your sin, for our sin, and Jesus made that payment so that you and I could be reconciled to him. Think about that. The one who is preeminent, verses 15 through 20, is the one that humbled himself to come and reconcile us. It was accomplished by Jesus, but number two, it was accomplished for our holiness. This is pretty important. It's a reality that we often leave out of this message that we preach. Hopefully not here. And I think sometimes we're so eager to get people to heaven that we forget about the reality of holiness. See, your reconciliation does pardon your sin, but it does something else. Notice what he says in the, in the passage. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the idea of what we often call the great exchange, where Christ takes upon himself our sin, and because of his faithfulness and his righteousness and cleansing work, we now are credited with his righteousness. Friends, our reconciliation does have to do with us going to heaven. You will not make it to heaven without being reconciled to God. But it also has to do with much more than that. It has to do with our justification for sure, our standing before God. But it also has to do with our sanctification, our growth in holiness, and the ultimate goal, which is our glorification, our being made perfect, able to be presented before God. See, there will, no, there, there will be... There will only be holy people in heaven. And the the problem is that we all realize, well, that's none of us. And the only way we can gain that is through Jesus. Because he pardons us, he reconciles us, and he gives us what we never had to present us faultless before the throne. And that is the point of our salvation, even when God predestined us for salvation in Ephesians 1.4 that was read earlier. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. This was God's plan before there was a tree on the planet, before there was a planet. This was God's plan that you be holy and blameless accomplished for our holiness. That's that's what Jesus did. Notice notice this passage just right here in this this brief text that we see how the work of Jesus takes us from open hostility against God to to bringing us to present us holy before God, from hostility to holiness. This is the work of the gospel. It's it's the only way that that this can happen is through what Jesus did for us. Reconciliation accomplished, but then reconciliation demonstrated. Look at verse 23. It says, if indeed, so listen, let me go back and read this again. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Notice verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, verse 23 may throw some of us for a bit of a loop, especially since we hold firmly to the security of the believer. Verse 23 may mess with you a little bit. What do you mean, if? Paul lists a condition here. He says, if you continue, if indeed you continue, provided you continue in the faith. Paul is asserting here that the standing of these believers in Colossae, and really the, 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 the standing of any Christian at any point in time, that the standing of Christians is conditioned upon their remaining firmly founded and established in the faith. Now, our English text make it, makes it sound like there's a possibility that some could lose the salvation that they once had. That's not what he's teaching. The phrase, if indeed, or maybe translated provided that, does not indicate a loophole for doubts. Its intent is to state confidently, as if Paul were saying it this way, if you continue to stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure you will. It's kind of the idea behind it. He's saying this as a way to get their attention in relation to the influence of the false teachers that were present. He says, if you continue by clinging to the true gospel, and I know you will, then you can rest assured you will be presented blameless and before the throne. In other words, their continuous walk with Jesus and hope in the gospel is not the condition of their being holy and blameless, but rather the proof of it. This is the doctrine of what we call the perseverance of the saints. What Paul is helping them and us to see is that if it is true, and it is, that all believers, true Christians, will persevere to the end, then it's equally true that all believers must persevere to the end. A few things maybe to help unpack this a little bit. Listen, it is true that not all who profess to be Christian are in fact Christian. Just because, you're, just because you say you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. There has to be some evidence of that. A true regenerate heart will prove itself in obedience, and righteousness, and faithfulness, in perseverance. Those who fall away from the faith prove they never genuinely had the faith to begin with. See that in 1 John chapter 2. But it's equally true that all who are truly Christian will, in fact, remain such. They will remain a believer. John 10 talks about how Christ keeps us. I think that to, for, for us to think that there's a possibility to lose our salvation is an attack against the gospel. It's, it, it's, 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 just, it, it's such a man-centered and works-based understanding of the gospel. To think that if you can lose your salvation, that that means you can do something to get it. 
So Paul's not at all inserting this possibility that you can lose your salvation. He's just encouraging them and reminding them that if you're truly believing this gospel, you must persevere to the end. And I know you will if you're truly saved. He's just reminding them that, that, listen, you've got to continue living out your life of obedience. One of the true marks of a Christian is that they will not abandon the gospel. Will there be seasons of struggle and doubt? Sin? Yes. But they will not ultimately abandon Christ because he will never abandon them. So I can say the very same thing to you here today. If you continue to stand firmly on the gospel, not shifting from the hope that you've heard, you can rest confidently that you'll stand blameless before the throne. However, if you live a life that is continually characterized by sin and by lack of fruit, by lack of righteousness, listen to me very clearly. If you live a life professing to be a Christian, but your life doesn't match up with that, you should take no comfort in your salvation. You shouldn't. Because a true Christian will persevere. It should bother you if you do not see evidences of righteousness. It's going to be different. It's going to look different. It's going to look different in seasons and and patterns. There's no formula for what this looks like. But you, you should understand, Christians, that if you truly profess Jesus, it will be evident in your persevering in him. It's not some superficial thing that we preach. Believe in Jesus and all is well. It is well. We're still called to faithfulness and fruitfulness. We're reconciled. And that's demonstrated in our perseverance. As we conclude this time together this morning, I want us just to point, I want to point to several points of application just quickly as we we think about what this passage calls us to do. First of all, it calls us to be reconciled to God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, he's speaking to Christians there, but he says that we're called to implore. He, he says, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That that is part of the ministry that we preach to an unbelieving world. Be reconciled to God. And so if you're here today and you've never put your trust and hope in Christ, that is what, that, that is Step number one for you today, put your hope in Christ. Be reconciled to God. Understand that there's only, that the only way for you to be right with a holy God is to put your hope and trust in Jesus and all that he did to make you right with him. Paul says in that same chapter in 5 verse 21 in 2 Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him... Not in you. In him we might become the righteousness of God. Be reconciled to God. Friends, I just ask you, where are you putting your hope? If you're uncertain about whether you've been reconciled to God, where are you putting your hope? Is it in people? Is it in material, worldly things? Are you you putting it in your own ability to somehow represent yourself before God? Put your hope in Christ. He is your only hope. Be reconciled to God. Number two, 
If you're a follower of Jesus, you should take comfort in your reconciliation. You should rejoice. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, again, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. As a Christian, you should be one of the happiest people on the planet. Not because of your circumstances, materially or, world, or earthly speaking. You should be glad because you've been reconciled to God. You should rejoice. It should be something that humbles you and you should be thankful. The, the, the fact that we've been reconciled means we are a new creation and that means the entire course of your life is now impacted. Take comfort in that. Be thankful to God for what he's done. How often does that fill our prayers, by the way? How often do we just cry out with gratitude and thankfulness to God for what he's done in Christ for us? When's the last time you thanked the Lord that he saved you? That he forgave you? That he adopted you? That he reconciled you? That he redeemed you? When's the last time you just sat amazed that God would do that? The preeminent one would humble himself for your sake. Take comfort in that, friends, and rejoice. Number three, pursue reconciliation. Pursue reconciliation with others. You know, our sense of being reconciled to Christ should inform our relationships with other people. Pastor Ray Ortland said, the gospel being what it is and always will be, the message of reconciliation, our churches should be the most reconciling, peaceable, relaxed, happy places in town. There should never, ideally speaking, I know we live in a fallen world and it's, it is what it is, but there, there should never be a church marked by conflict. Ever. Churches that are marked by conflict, and praise God, we're, we're not one of them currently, right? Praise God for that. Churches marked by conflict have taken their eyes off the gospel. They've taken their eyes off of what it means to be reconciled. And, it's, and, and they're not, their lack of refusal to be reconciled with other people is because they truly don't appreciate the reconciliation that they've been given by God. It should inform all of our pursuits. Pursuits of reconciliation. And number four, we should be an ambassador for reconciliation. When we think about what God has done in Christ to reconcile us through his body of flesh, to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. Friends, that ought to spur us on to want as many people as possible to know that same truth. 2 Corinthians 5, again, this is kind of a sister passage to this. Paul says in verse 19, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. That's amazing. 
that this work of reconciliation that was accomplished at a point in time through the ministry of Jesus Christ, that that message now of it being accomplished is now entrusted to us, that God, when you speak about Jesus, it's God, God is working through you to communicate to others how they can be reconciled. It says God was making his appeal through us because you're an ambassador for the king. That's a big part of what we're to be about individually and corporately. That's why we want the gospel of Jesus Christ to be central to all that we do and say, whether it's in our services, in our, in our Bible studies, in our conversations. You know, you shouldn't be able to talk to someone at Redeeming Grace very long and something about the gospel not pop up. Should be the case anyway. Just again, think about your own prayer life. Is this a frequent prayer that you pray? That God, through me, would you help me to be an ambassador for you in bringing this gift of reconciliation to someone else? It's the last time you prayed for a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, a family member, somebody you know, for them to be reconciled to God? When's the last time you prayed and asked the Lord for you to use you as an ambassador for that purpose? When's the last time your home group prayed for lost people by name? Friends, this is what we're called to be. Why do you think we're here? <laughs> why, why do you think God, when he, did, when he saved us, he just didn't, just didn't zap us on to glory? Why do, why do you think you're here? No, you're not here to make that income you're making. You're not here to, to celebrate that education you have. You're not here, you're not left here to, to build your own little glorious kingdom on planet Earth. You're here to be an ambassador, to be an employee of an embassy that is eternal, to go forth and speak the name of Jesus to your friends and neighbors and people even across the world. Sign up for that Moldova mission trip. Join that good news club on Monday afternoons. Partner with our local ministry partners of like Young Life and InterVarsity at St. Mary's College. Take part in being ambassadors. You don't have to do those things, okay, fine. Just be faithful and diligent as you pray and as you pursue people to make sure that you're pointing them to Christ. That's why you're here. That's why we as a church exist, to make disciples of those who've been reconciled to Jesus. That's why we're here, friends. Be an ambassador for reconciliation. Because we've been reconciled, we too, we, we should want to see others reconciled. I know that as we go forward in the work that God has called us to do, that's what we'll be about. That's what we'll be about. And even from a distance, that's what this whole idea of putting down roots is about. We want to put down roots in our community because we want to be here for the long haul to proclaim this glorious Savior. We're not ultimately about building a building. You can preach the gospel without a building. You don't need a building to, to see people one to Christ. But it's about what we want to do in that building and beyond that building and for the sake of the gospel in this community and the ends of the earth until Jesus comes again. This work of reconciliation is an amazing gift from God. 
Let's praise God for his reconciling work through Christ. And friend, if you're here today and you're still alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, your hope is to be found in him. Let's praise God for that reconciliation. Let's pray for others to experience that reconciliation. Pray that our our prayer times would be filled with thankfulness to God and intercession for others. Let's pursue that ministry of reconciliation that God has given us. Friends, that's what what we're called to be. As we think about the the glorious truth we find in Colossians 1, 21 through 23, this is the gospel right here, and that is what redeeming grace is all about. We've been redeemed by grace, and we want to be ambassadors of that redeeming grace. For the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this glorious hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, we realize that left to ourselves, we would be we would be in a difficult situation. Lord, we would be without hope. We would remain alienated from you. We would be cut off. Because of our sin. But God, you've been gracious and you loved us and you've given what we could have never gained on our own. You've given yourself so that we can be reconciled to you. Father, we thank you that you saw fit not to leave us in our sin, but Lord, to bring us to yourself so that we can be reconciled to you. That you are the God of peace. And that you've done everything that is necessary for us to have a perfect reconciliation. Not just a perfect reconciliation, but a permanent one. Father, it's my prayer that as we leave here today, that that glorious hope would be the very thing that drives our lives. That the life we live will be the life of an ambassador. The life of a reconciled sinner who's been humbled by grace and who gives their life as a testimony to that grace till we're either called home or till Christ returns. God, would you help us do that by your grace and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.